Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. When the pandemic first began to take hold, the development of a vaccination against the coronavirus wasn't just a way to prevent its spread, but a means to go back to normality. Yet now that several vaccines have received approval and are being administered in many countries around the world, the route back to normality is looking rough and somewhat vague. With these vaccines, we are likely to see widening gaps between the countries that can afford it and have the infrastructure in place to administer it to their populations and the countries that do not. We are likely to see further, not fewer, travel restrictions, and the way we do business will depend on where we are in the world. For this podcast, I spoke with Dr. Noah Rafford, futurist at the Dubai Future Foundation, to get a better idea of what the world will look like post-vaccine, the opportunities it presents for startups in the Middle East, and why Chinese technology has the potential to surpass Silicon Valley. Just a side note, the occasional scratching you hear is Dr. Noah readjusting his face mask. Hi, Dr. Noah. Thank you for appearing on our podcast. Uh, this is my first in-person podcast since the pandemic. Woo! <laughs> um, so you're a futurist. I want to get an understanding of what a futurist does day to day. Sure. Well, you know, the, the joke is that futurists are people who talk a lot and do nothing. Uh, and that's not uh, entirely unfair. Uh, uh, certainly, historically, the role of a futurist in organizations and with government has been someone whose job is to help think about the long term. Uh, and so the kinds of actions and activities and investments which matter on the long term are not necessarily the kind of things that come up in your day-to-day decision-making around uh, investments or operations, etc. Uh, however, that's not the case here in Dubai, in the UAE. Uh, I moved to Dubai, gosh, 10 years ago now and helped set up the, the National Foresight Unit within the Prime Minister's office. And because the pace of growth and pace of change here, like many developing countries, but particularly, I think, characteristic of Dubai, in the UAE um, is so rapid, things which would ordinarily be on a three to five year decision cycle in most of the rest of the world, you know, are happening in 12 months here. Um, and so the role of the futurist, particularly in the context of government, particularly in a government like Dubai in the UAE, where the integration between leadership vision and execution and the integration between sort of state-owned enterprises and the rest of the market is so tight, and that's what helps enable the success uh, of the city and the country, uh, is particularly salient. So it's not just what's going to happen in 20 years. As uh, my, my, my boss and my mentor, His Excellency Mohammed Gurgawi, always says, well, so what, right? Like 3D printing might disrupt supply chains in 20 years. So what? What does that mean for us now? Well, here in the context of doing futures work in the UAE and Dubai, uh, that has really salient present day implications for investment, for decision making, for for understanding. So the job of a futurist in Dubai is, um, you know, quite close to the job of an investor or a strategist or, you know, in, in, in other countries or circumstances. But the, the essence is still there. It's help think about the things that we're not paying attention to help try to translate the things which are just kind of changing and emerging on the peripheral vision, perhaps, or just over the horizon, and help translate those into opportunities for action today. So this year, a lot has changed. Indeed. 
I don't know whether you managed to kind of foresee any of, of the things that have happened. But if you can give us an overview of how, how things have changed and how you think it's going to impact the future going forward. Sure. Um, well, I can say with some small degree of satisfaction, I did see Corona coming, not uh, because of any super genius upon my part, but uh, part of how I do my job and I think how any good futurist does their job is by maintaining a huge international network of people in very diverse locations and in very diverse fields. I'm very privileged to have a lot of friends in Singapore and China and Korea. And so as uh, coronavirus was starting to unfold in the beginning of the year, it was really affecting them strongly. And it does not take a genius to realize that, you know, there's multiple flights a day from uh, Asia to Dubai. The fundamentals of human biology are the same. The fundamentals of virology are the same. And what is happening there is uh, more than likely going to happen here in just in a matter of weeks or months. Uh, so so I, I'm on the record uh, predicting that, uh, that it was going to have a big impact on Dubai. I'm on the record uh, of being one of the first, actually the first to start working from home and wearing masks while all my colleagues were call, calling me chicken. And thankfully, uh, literally on the record with video predicting that some of the major implications like Expo being pushed back and the or Museum of the Future being pushed back and some of the other strategic implications uh, were going to happen. And so, you know, those can be career ending bets if they go wrong. Um, but thankfully in this case, I saw that coming and then also managed to, to spend the lockdown in the relatively uh, comfortable environment of a sort of rural farm in, in France with my family because, you know, get out early, get out often, as one can, uh, one can, can, can summarize for, for when it comes to pandemics. But that, you know, actually has had more of an impact than, than, even, than, than I realized. And I think it's not so much, thank God, on the public health uh, impacts that's severe and, and still very real, uh, even as the vaccine will start to roll out in the next quarter. Um, but on the secondary and the tertiary impacts of the economy and on society and politics. And we're really still at the beginning of the, of the, the, the impact of that. When you say we're still at the beginning, that sounds a bit terrifying because it feels, I mean, initially everybody was so terrified of it. Everyone did stay indoors. And now it just feels, particularly in Dubai, like it's over almost. You know, the, all we have to do is just wear a mask and maintain some sort of distance and... We can go about our daily lives. Well, we are tremendously fortunate here in the UAE. Uh, and uh, as I'm sure your listeners and yourself have friends around the world, not everyone is experiencing uh, it the way we are. Also, the reality is this is not something that's often uh, repeated in the press too often, but it's, it's, the virus is largely beaten in a lot of Asian countries. Places like Thailand, Vietnam, China itself have managed to get it under control early and uh, life goes on, right, in a very sort of quote-unquote normal way there. Uh, of course, that's not the case in Europe and North America, uh, in many Latin American countries, where the virus is still raging more or less out of control and uncontrollably. So it does feel strange here that we are so lucky to be in a place where it's relatively well managed and contained. And I think that in and of itself is one of the major lessons from that history will look back upon was that 2020 was one of those accelerant uh, years, one of those breaks. You know, Joseph Stalin said that there are... are or decades when nothing happens uh, and, you know, minutes when years happen or something of that nature. I probably butchered that quote, but... Um, what a time to quote Stalin. Yeah, well, you know, history is funny, isn't it? Uh, and in 2020 was one of those years, right? You know, it's these long-run, slow crises or tensions that were building up all came to the fore. Uh, a lot of the, the issues in, the, in uh, European and particularly North American labor markets were all brought to the fore. A lot of the underlying issues of income inequality, uh, of the structural change in the economy, partially due to automation, partially due to the changing nature of outsourcing, you know, the way those benefits were distributed throughout society. All of those things have been percolating for a long time and went into the elections of 2016 and, and, and previously. And so we were feeling them. But then enter coronavirus and everything sort of breaks. 
and you have this massive lurch forward into what looks to become the new, the new environment or the new regime economically, socially, uh, or, or politically. And so you, know, you, see, you have a variety of huge things which I think we'll look back upon as the 2020 being the year where things really shifted into a new, into a new order, not least of which is just the, the sort of massive acceptance of digitization in almost every aspect of our lives. I uh, don't think it's, it's, it's uh, too soon to remember that before coronavirus in the UAE, it was illegal to teach your child at home. Right? You had to have your kid in a registered enrolled school. Not because there was anything against homeschooling, it's just that to certify that the educational standards were being met, you had to have them in an enrolled environment. Uh, teleworking and working from home was culturally bizarre, like quite alien. Um, and now it's the norm, right? And study after study is showing that productivity did not suffer. You know, people, yes, people love being in the office with each other, but work went on, right? I think educational standards have declined significantly through working from home, and so that will take some time to adjust. But the reality is we've all shifted into an online, uh, an online mode in a way that uh, we never thought could have happened as fast as it did. That's one of the major things. You know, the, the other one being the split between, um, you know, good governance or governments which work and can work well and governments which are, which are still struggling with the other aspects of governance of getting day-to-day -day lives, you know, working and agreeing on things. And, and this is, can be broadly pushed between sort of governments which have seen a wave of populism and, a, and, and of severe uh, polarization. I mean, that that uh, and was quite intriguing initially. The, the countries that we consider first world, we even call them first world, were the ones that were struggling the most with handling this. And the populations even accepting the very basics of wearing a mask, that was a problem. Has this virus set about a new world order? Is it going to be different? Um, things that define whether you become a first world country or you know, a developing or a developed country? I, I mean, history will probably make those terms themselves seem relatively quaint in the sense that, you know, right now the world's largest trading block is China and East Asia. You know, post-TPP, the new trading regime, which was put in place what, last month or something, is the world's largest trading block, right? China is, depending on what measures you measure, you measure it by, the first or the second world's largest economy. Um, and that notion, yes, the 20th century metrics of development of, you know, life expectancy and GDP per capita and those things, those are still salient, uh, but they no longer describe the kind of geopolitical groupings that they used to in that sense. I think if you if you look objectively at what countries managed to have the most effective response to coronavirus and to helping facilitate this transition to digitization and who are currently in the process of uh, of accelerating the recovery economically and socially, uh, it is uh, the, the East is doing a great job, you know, and the UAE is doing a fantastic job in that respect. It's 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 strong governance frameworks strong leadership vision, uh, a strong system of accountability so that, you know, when we set targets, they're, they're actually met, and a relatively high trust in and faith in society, in the community, right? It's that sort of atomized, individualized approach where individual freedom is prized over anything else, even if that means at the detriment of, of society and the economy or the country, versus the sense that you have a place to play in the community, you have a responsibility as a citizen, and uh, and it, even though it might be slightly uncomfortable to wear masks as we're doing now, in the scheme of things, it's a relatively minor inconvenience for a society in a country that works. Um, and so I think that those sort of cultural splits, which you could roughly argue as sort of East versus West, right, this, uh, have have been brought to the fore in much much stronger ways, and will shape the next decade, the very least, if not longer. How do you think it will shape the next decade? Um, you know, Asia's winning. 
Asia will continue to win. I mean, China still has positive GDP growth right now. It's one of the only countries in the world that, uh, you know, it's not much, right? But even in the worst of the lockdown, and the lockdown in China was worse than anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, they were literally chaining people into buildings and whatnot. And the amount of, of, of authority presence on the street to ensure that in a country that large, the virus was managed effectively is, is astounding. Uh, and yet they're already almost up to full capacity production. You know, the, the reality is the economy is doing well. What yeah. does that mean for our part of the world? Well, it's interesting because when I came back from lockdown, one of the first things that we did was a, an economic scenario planning exercise to try to anticipate what, is the, what does the next 10 years look like for, for Dubai's economy. Uh, and Dubai, you know, I think is in contradistinction per se to the larger economy as the, uh, of the UAE as a whole because Dubai is uniquely integrated to the global supply chains and therefore uniquely uh, vulnerable or fragile to the shifting global conditions um, or responsive, I should say. And, you know, what we found was quite scary, actually, in the sense it was looking like a year to two years of pretty severe economic contraction, followed by a reorganization of kind of intense competition. And then the results of those competitions would found the, the basis of the new regime of growth, right? And that that new regime of growth was going to be primarily in the what we call the immaterial industries, digital industries, creative industries, etc. And, you know, when I was looking at this, like we're talking about this year, I think the official figures are around, uh, you know, minus seven, minus eight percent GDP contraction. If you compare that to 2009, that's around two and a half times worse than 2009. Right Now, those are gross measures. GDP is a gross measure. But if you think about it objectively, you think, wow, we are not right now living through a period that is, let's call it two and a half or three times worse than 2009. And 2009 being like one of the most traumatic economic and social shocks of the country's history. And yet it does not feel like that at all. And so objectively, we're actually on track with all the forecasts that we were making. But what, what we didn't take into account was that uh, everywhere else is doing so much worse. And uh, there's no joy in that. There's no glee in that. But the reality is one of relativism, right? Right now, the hotels are packed with the world's wealthy, you know, the world's privileged, the world's mobile, the people who own capital, people who own building, uh, own uh, companies and whatnot, and then the people who are, are a little bit more mobile, right? You go outside, the restaurants are jam-packed, right? Safely so, you know, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, safely so. But it feels like 2016 or 2017 again, right? There's an enthusiasm, there's a vibrancy, there's a sense of optimism and hope, which I haven't felt here so tangibly uh, for, for years. Um, and that feels amazing. And you think, wait, how does that work? We're literally in one of the worst economic performing years objectively in, the, in history, right, for the country. And of course, not every sector of the economy is experiencing this kind of boom and it might be localized and whatnot. But the sentiment is actually quite positive overall. Uh, and, and His Highness Mohammed bin Rashid has said the UAE will become the first country to rebound the fastest and the biggest and the best. And you get the sense that that might be possible, right? You get the sense that in certain areas and certain sectors, it's uh, it's quite exciting, particularly as we start to look at the kind of changing nature of the region vis-a-vis -vis the Abrahamic Accords, you know, the Abraham Accords. Things are exciting now here. And so that paradox was something that, that took us a little while to wrestle with. Like, objectively, the economy is doing poorly, and yet all these amazing deals are being made, all these amazing opportunities are being are being advanced. And so I think that the UAE uh, will do extremely well out of this coming forward. Um, it has managed the pandemic very, very well. It is, you know, Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi are, are extremely well positioned for this shift toward digitization, this kind of opening up of relations between UAE and Israel and what that means for the regional business, regional businesses and region at, at large, you know, sort of North Africa, Africa, et cetera. 
Um, and the opportunities are, are, are huge. Like the future looks really bright. That's promising and, and quite good to hear. Um, I want to go back to the, the way we work and the way we interact with one another. With the vaccine on the way, how do you think that's going to change things? Will life go back to pre-COVID times? Or do you think we've now uh, adapted to this hybrid way of working and living? I think hybrid is a really good way to describe it um, because there's a lot of vaccine optimism going around right now. And I think that, that a lot of that is might be founded, might be well-founded. But um, if we look about the world as a whole returning to normal beforehand, and by which we mean we don't need masks, there's no travel restrictions, we no fear of social gathering, et cetera, you know, vaccine availability is going to become a really big issue around the world. Again, the UA is quite lucky because, uh, because we're quite successful. We have access to modern medicine. We have very strong international diplomatic relationships and trade agreements. So we already, through, uh, through the trials with Sinopharm and the, and the Group 42 uh, vaccine, we already have that you know, quite largely available. I know many people personally who are part, were part of the trial. And I understand that we'll be a- have access to other, uh, other vaccines as well. So I, I actually think that... Um, for the UAE and for, for uh, sort of well-governed, privileged, wealthy countries, there is a, a quite a strong shot at things going, quote-unquote, back to normal quite soon, um, even to the point where, you know, vaccine tourism will become a thing, right? You can imagine that the vaccine would be offered on the border for cheap or for free as uh, to come into the country, right? Uh, now, there's other questions that that raises, uh, I think very legitimate questions that that raises, but uh, the countries which are in the position to be able to at least roll the vaccine out and assuming there's no mutation of the virus, assuming the vaccine has a long, long lasting uh, immunity and no secondary consequences, countries like the UAE will be very well positioned to take advantage of that. But even in that case, not everyone is uh, is as well governed and as lucky as we are. So there's going to be, you know, large swaths of the planet and the economy that just aren't able to get access to it, aren't able to distribute it as well, aren't able to enforce its its uh, its rollout, or you have populations who might not necessarily be as keen to accept it. Um, we're, so we're going to have these kind of travel corridors of, of vaccinated green zones, as it were, and, and it's quite likely that, that your vaccination status will be integrated into your passport quite soon and be necessary for crossing certain borders. Um, and then there will be gray zones, and then there will be black zones. And so this sort of uh, uh, kind of hybrid stumbling through or muddling through will persist for several years uh, and, uh, and is, a, is a new fact of life, which only further, I think, fuels that, that, that schism between countries and economies which have managed both the transition and the virus very well and, and the social you know, realities of that and those which are still struggling with the, you know, admitting that the virus is even real. I mean, this sounds like creating a two-tier system almost, the haves and have-nots, but based on something entirely different, perhaps in one case, not in your control if your economy cannot afford it, and perhaps in the other sense, if it's the anti-vaxxers community. Um, I mean, you know, the anti-vaxxers were such a small community and people thought they were ridiculous. Yes. But uh, I think they're going to be a big part of the world population. Yes. I mean, there's a really interesting survey, which I saw recently, an international survey um, done by an international nonprofit around uh, vaccine acceptability and and attitudes. And, you know, the... uh, the results surprised me. Some of the loca- some of the countries that were most keen you know, had the highest willingness to 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 take a vaccine um, were India, Brazil, China, of course. Some of the countries that were least willing to were France, the UK, United States. You know, um, and so the numbers were still small, right? We were talking fifteen, twenty five percent, but still at that level, that's a quite a quite a vast number of 
of, of Why people. Why is that, do you think? So the, 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 when you dig into the survey results, the questions were, why would you not take this? And it was, uh, gets down to that issue of trust. So it's distrust in the science or distrust in expertise, which is part of what drove the whole populist movement in 2016. Distrust of regulators and the elites and the, or the, the regulating body uh, and distrust of the com- companies themselves. So at the, at the root of it, people uh, who aren't comfortable taking a vaccine, at the end of the day, don't trust the authorities. Don't trust the science, the regulators, or the companies behind them. And once you start into digging into that, you get you very open, very rapidly open that kind of Pandora's box of the sort of post-fact world. Which, when you're arguing with a QAnon supporter, uh, there is it's not a rational context. You're not agreeing on the same definition of reality. You don't inherit the same consensus. Sorry, you don't inhabit the same consensus reality. Right? You literally live in different worlds. And nothing you can say is going to to convince someone that, you know, science is real, <laughs> right? Or there is such a good thing as good government, right? Or not all pharmaceutical companies are out to, uh, you know, remote control you through 5G. Um, but it, it is just stunning that some of the most, quote unquote, advanced and educated countries are those which have the highest degree of, of anti-vaxxers and, and of conspiracy theorists. And and I think that's part of this, this, this split. Um, and I should say, like, let us not fool ourselves to think that we lived in an equal world beforehand, right? Um, that's what I meant when I was saying these things are just accelerating those differences, not in such perhaps a, a black and white way of the haves and the have-nots, but on what you have and what you have access to and what you gain sort of the right to participate in. And, you know, that, that, is, that is being drawn more starkly clear now. And the consequence of that will be, will be even more clear as we roll out of this and who recovers the fastest and who doesn't. I want to come back to this point about why, why people think this way. But um, just going back to the, the green zones and the gray zones, I can see how that impacts tourism directly. But what other impact do you think this will have? That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, thankfully, the virus, um, whilst it is, lives on surfaces, you know, it hasn't had a material impact in terms of the f- physical flow of goods uh, and services. And so, you know, we were all able to get through the pandemic, thanks uh, not in, in no small part to e-commerce and home delivery and Deliveroo and Uber Eats and Kareem and, and um, you know, Amazon and Noon. And like these were lifesavers uh, and not to mention, you know, the other aspects of the supply chain there. Um, and that, that's not a parenthetical uh, observation either, because you look at the countries that had a much more robust and developed uh, uh, e-commerce system like China, right, like most of Southeast Asia, uh, some parts of the region as well, um, they were able to adapt and succeed much faster. And, you know, the boom in, in those sectors has been extraordinary, both from an investment and a capitalization and, pers- and performance perspective. My parents live in London, and they had to wait two weeks for their groceries to arrive. It's bonkers. I mean, look, it, it, again, zooming back out to the historical context here, something like within, with, with there's about a billion people within a four-hour flight to Dubai, right? Something like 30% of them don't have access to running water, don't have toilets, don't have struggle with basic housing, vast number of them are unbanked, you know, and that, so the reality is um, 85% of the world's population lives outside of Europe and North America. These are the fastest growing populations. These are the fastest growing economies. These are still the, con- the, the economies that are struggling with many of the basic needs like healthcare, education provision, housing, good governance, etc. But yet paradoxically are also the ones where the most uh, leaps and bounds of of innovation are being made in terms of applied innovation and applied science. And so it's no 
a surprise that, you know, really, whilst we think about Amazon as being the sort of uh, innovator in e-commerce, the reality is, is e-commerce in the United States is a frac is, is less than 10% of all retail transactions, not to mention all actual economic transactions. Whereas in China, the online to offline integration is much more profound and integrated. And the integration of WeChat with finance and with insurance and with identity management and with uh, booking of services and tracking of goods and all of those sorts of things, you can run your entire business, arguably parts of your entire life. Uh, on an integrated platform like WeChat, and that and you could for a long time, right? And that's the case too, where uh, in a lot of you know North African contexts, Indian contexts, you might not be using the same platform, i.e., WeChat, but because the basic provision of infrastructure was so poor there to begin with, and then suddenly you have this digital panacea of integration being offered to you that natural leapfrogging occurred, and so therefore now where that really matters, we're in a, a you know performance regime where physical contact is diminished, the ability to be face-to-face -face is diminished, all of the, the, the aspects of like signing papers and, you know, doing like attesting yeah. documents and stuff has just been blown out of the water as being improbable or, or inconvenient. Those are the places which are working best, right? So, so you will see this leapfrogging. We already see this leapfrogging happening. And the, the, the gains which have been made over the last year in digitization, be it in, you know, e-commerce and logistics or in, uh, you know, entertainment in the creative industries or in gaming. I mean, it's a vast amount of increase in gaming going on, and we can talk about that in a moment as well. The implications for that, I mean, games are, are literally the new Hollywood. They're three times larger than music and television and film industries combined, right? All of that stuff is really laying out the architecture of what the next decade looks like in the context of this governance issue of where you can travel, who can travel, who's going to succeed, who's having a more difficult time. So, Do you think the, the growth that we've seen so far in these digital services and digitization uh, is going to continue even with the vaccine? Where once things really open up, are people going to still stay at home and play games or will they want to go to the cinema? The, uh, I think there will be a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, the, in the United States, for example, um, you know, all of the major studios are releasing all of the new films online yeah. at the same time as they are in the cinemas, right? And there's even some conversation around there has historically been an, an antitrust law in place where movie studios cannot own cinemas and distribution channels. Now, because all the cinemas are going out of business, the largest cinema chains are literally going bankrupt. There is conversations afoot for like, uh, I believe it was Paramount, although I'm not quite sure, to buy AMC or one of the larger mu movie chains. And, you know, so there's there's long-lasting damage which has occurred to the old way of doing things. And some of us will want to go back to, quote-unquote, the old ways. But as a, as a society and as an economy, I don't think in certain things they will ever recover to the level that they were beforehand, right? There, we all want to go out and, you know, might see a good film perhaps. We might want to go out and see uh, our friends. But, but also let us not forget, and this might sound gloomy or grim or, or terrifying, this is not going to be the last pandemic, Right. This is not going to be the last <laughs> pandemic by far. Uh, we got very lucky with this one. Um, the underlying forces which create this and the other pandemics of the last decade or two are not diminishing. Right, They're accelerating. Integration of the supply chain, decimation of natural habitat, uh, intermingling of different species and populations, lack of public health surveillance, like all of these things uh, are, are, are accelerating. So what does that mean for a society? Because we've all kind of gone a bit inwards. We've been spending a lot more time at home. Our social bubbles have become much smaller. So what impact is that going to have on societies? I think there's, good, there's a lot more emotional fragmentation. Right? The reality is, whether it was true or not, thanks in part to you know 
social media or global media, we all felt like we were more or less participating in the same world overall, right? Now there were the people at the fringes, the QAnons and the you know, anti-vaxxers and the, you know, the birthers and all these sort of things who believed in more, let's say, more radical interpretations of reality. But those have historically been at the fringe and you know, the center has held, at least from a narrative perspective, uh, that is, I, I think, no longer the case um, in the sense that just the day-to-day -day lived experience between ourselves here in Dubai and my friends in the UK or Amsterdam or France or Singapore is now so dramatically different. It becomes really challenging to even connect emotionally. Like, you know, we're not going through the same cycles of, okay, it's summer, you know, it's spring, everybody, we're, you know, everybody's more or less okay and the weather's nice and you're kind of feeling happy and stuff. You know, if it's spring in the context of a third lockdown versus it's spring in the context of Dubai where it's like everything is great and, you know, it's really hard to connect that way. Um, so the emotional fragmentation, the, the kind of social red shifting, uh, I think is going to be much more dramatic. And so therefore we're gonna see a much more localization of experience, of services, of markets, of, of economies, of trends, you know, of culture is going to start to, to cluster a little bit more tightly in our little bubbles, even, or especially when we can go back face to face. You know, the last two months of being able to be in the office and be with friends here in Dubai has been a radically different experience for me than my friends in the United States who are still, or my family in the United States who are still more or less in various degrees of social mm -hmm. lockdown or anxiety around that. Um, Is this a sort of reversal of globalization? Which itself has been a long-running trend, right? Deglobalization and regionalization has been something which has been under discussion for, for a, a, a long time. Um, I, I think that this regionalization, when I mentioned the, the new trading agreement in China, the world's largest trading bloc now, and, and all of the agreements uh, that are around that, um, you know, I don't, I'm a massive TikTok uh, theorist, you know, I, I consume a lot of TikTok, but I also pay a lot of attention to what TikTok means from an ethnographic perspective. And I don't think that the, you know, the, the semiotics of TikTok as opposed to Instagram are profoundly Asian in the sense that you're participating in community activity. It's not about you as some global, some, some individual grand star. Yes, there are stars on, on, on TikTok, right? But it's these sort of emerging trends which kind of mysteriously emerge from, from the algorithm and you know you participate in them you affirm your identity in the moment and in that community or that hashtag group by participating in them you know it's not a mistake that TikTok emerged as the world's top app at this moment in time right that's the consequence of of uh you know asia and asian values which i think you know the uae's arab values are very similar in that sense um community family you know social responsibility etc I mean, what i you found know. quite interesting about TikTok is that your main page is equivalent to the discovery page on Instagram, whereas your main page on Instagram is the people who you follow. Correct. And yeah. there is that sense of community and there is that sense of discovery and a trend will pick up, it will be a dance and everybody around the world is doing it. Right, exactly. The, uh, without getting sort of too profound about that, but the, you know, the ontology of that, the way of being relating to that is like, I am curating my reality. I'm choosing what I see and what I experience in Instagram, like the people that I follow define what I see, versus I am participating in a shared reality. Now that shared reality is mediated through some mysterious algorithm, you know, in the same way that our shared reality is mediated through mysterious forces of the global supply chain or something, right? So there's a sort of profound philosophical uh, difference there, which I think neatly summarizes the condition of the, of the 21st century. What I think is particularly interesting with regards to TikTok is that it's, it shows a wider look at the technology and uh, the kind of the biases in the technology 
uh, between you know Chinese tech and uh, Western tech, and that plays out into you know how you define the laws of certain tech that will emerge, like self-driving cars. Yes, algorithms need to be written to see who you kill at the end, like the trolley problem. Indeed, um, who you save rather, not who you kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, with the trolley problem, it, it, do you kill three people on this track or do you kill the one person? And and these are questions that we need to ask, that we need to develop regulations for. And I, the, from the Chinese perspective, it's very much community driven. There was mm. a study that showed that it was community driven, right. whereas in the West, it's very much individually driven. Right. And I think that's going to have a wider impact because we're c- primarily consumers of that technology in this part of the world. So I think, you know, TikTok is, is a very good example of, of how that community versus individualism plays out. P- particularly if you're talking about a, a futures perspective in the sense that, you know, the age demographic of TikTok is like 16 to 24, for example, whereas the age demographic of Instagram is like, you know, middle-aged people and the age demographic of Facebook is people just about to die. I'm joking if you're still on Facebook. But but the reality is, you know, the, the cultural norms and expectations uh, are, are being defined by the rising generation on TikTok and platforms like TikTok, right? And so, to your point, right? Those are the that's the sort of cultural milieu or the ethos that we will that we will be graduating into as these people become professionals and as these professionals become you know, lawmakers and you know executives and start to make these hard decisions in the next decade. That is the the the, the world that we are entering into, and we are very firmly, I think, at least in this part of the world and in the parts of the world that are succeeding faster, right? Uh, leaving the world of Instagram and Facebook uh, as a sort of centralized, uh, individualized experience. What impact will this have on the regional tech ecosystem? And with with the kind of reversal of globalization, are we, is, does it open up an opportunity for the regional startups and tech companies? Totally. I think that's an excellent question. Um, the uh, you know this the satire, the stereotype of Silicon Valley is its. Um, you know, teenage boys trying to use technology to replace their mom, right? And that is like, oh, laundry service on demand and like food delivery on demand and cleaning services on demand and stuff. And, you know, that gets extrapolated out into sort of shaving off marginal levels of convenience in your life to make you sort of uh, more and more comfortable. And the reality is the challenge of the 21st century that are truly life-threatening, civilization-threatening, right, which we got a taste of with corona, are related to climate change, you know, are related to the destabilizations that is going to cause both in terms of food chains, uh, public health infrastructure, you know, water supply, food supply, mass migration, all of these things. These are serious challenges. These are public goods challenges. These are public sector challenges in that sense. So what we need, you know, as a, as a, at a large scale is the best minds of the world, the best minds of our generation, focusing all of their entrepreneurial intellectual activities on solving, on figuring out how to solve these existential challenges for us all, right? Uh, how do we educate our children better? How do we heal ourselves better, cheaper, faster, et cetera? These kinds of things that, um, that are collective problems at the end of the day, right? And those are problems which are also highly regulated. So to answer your question, uh, if you contrast that sort of Silicon Valley stereotype with this, let's say the Chinese or the Emirati uh, entrepreneurial approach, right? It's like strongly integrated state-owned enterprises with regulators who also might in some ways be owners and or operators of those key services in these regulated industries, by which I mean healthcare, education, security, energy, technology, building, uh, infrastructure, construction, et cetera, transport, right? Um, and that puts us in a much more competitive position to be able to do the tests necessary to experiment our way into whatever the new solutions for those huge challenges are going to be uh, in a way that you just can't in a more uh, like laissez-faire free market and consumerist environment like the 
California because the reality is, um, you know, it's cheaper, faster, easier to get your burrito delivered in six seconds less than the competitor. And that's a nice short venture capital return to invest in that kind of company as opposed to investing in a 30-year infrastructure company that's going to take 25 years of basic science before it evolves. So what does that mean for the regional ecosystem? What does all of this stuff mean for, for this sort of growing divide between, you could argue, East and West? What that means is that the real opportunities for entrepreneurs in the region, yes, there's still a lot of value in making life easier and better for customers, right? There's just a lot of that. There's Especially in Dubai and the UAE, there's a lot of areas of inconvenience that can be shaved away to make life more efficient, more better. Still a market for that. But the real exciting opportunities are in tackling these massive social problems with government's partnership and support, right? With private sector entrepreneurship and capital in such a way that you really have the opportunity not just to like get a quick IPO in three to five years, right? Or seven to 10 years, right? But actually to shift an industry, you know, the true rhetoric of Silicon Valley, like change the world, make an impact of that, right? Truly shift education as an industry from this relatively 19th century factory archaic model that requires us to be face-to-face -face and all study the same thing at the same time to something which can be personalized, very low cost, very high quality, customized to where you are, wherever you are in the world, uh, and regulated as such, you know, that would make a massive difference in hundreds of millions of children's lives. Same for healthcare, same for the nature of work and the nature of employment, same for the nature of business itself. This sounds largely government driven though. And from what we hear from a lot of people in our community is that government should deal with the regulations and simplifying these things rather than playing such an active role. That is a naive and inaccurate view. Okay, please and, explain. And I don't say so as a matter of opinion. Like if you look at the history of innovation, right? And I cannot recommend highly enough the work of Carlotta Perez, uh, one of the world's preeminent innovation economists, and Mariana Mazzucato, who have both studied this in extraordinary levels of detail. If we take Silicon Valley as the archetypical innovation ecosystem, or Tel Aviv in Israel, now that we can speak about this, right? These both have benefited from decades of massive government support in terms of fundamental science, research and development, technology transfer programs, uh, direct loans and benefits to companies that were starting to start up. I mean, Tesla received a $500 million loan from the United States government in there, right? For decades, right? I mean, Stanford and uh, the area around Stanford was a massive land grant from the federal government, right? All these research parks, investment in IBM, investment from DARPA, all of these things came from federal stimulus that were federally driven by federal challenges, by government challenges. And this has been the case from the steam engine to the railroads to electrification to early silicon semiconductors to mobile technology. You know, you take the iPhone, the iconic symbol of, of consumer innovation. Every single technology in here was was invented or paid for by the by the U.S. government, almost from RAM to the Internet to uh, global positioning systems to touch screens, all of these things. And it took then the private sector to integrate that in a package that uh, became you know, the iPhone, right? So uh, when it comes to transition markets and transition technologies, when you're talking about generating a new model of education, right, or a new way of feeding everyone or a new health regime, the, the private sector can only participate after 20 to 30 years of massive federal direction and engagement. By federal, I mean government, right? Mm -hmm. Depends on the nature of the nature of the of the governance system that you're in. Um, so it's just historically inaccurate, naive, and self-serving to think that government's only job is just to like provide some light regulation, get out of the way, because history has proven that false again and again and again and again. And this gets back to our previous sentiment, right? Well, what's this next decade look like? What does the future look like? Well, it looks like those markets, those countries, those governments that actually have visionary leadership, effective regulation, active participation in the economy, 
as part of their development and transitioning from a 19th or 20th century model into a 21st century model, these are the places that beat Corona first, that are recovering the fastest, that have the, you know, the highest qualities of life right now, and that are going to attract the smartest, best, and wealthiest people in the coming years uh, because they don't labor under this delusion that the government's job is to get out of the way and let the market sort itself out. That has never been the case. Uh, that never will be the case when you're talking about things that uh, deal with market externalities. And, uh, and the countries and the companies and the entrepreneurs that accept that fact, right, that wean themselves off the fiction of uh, Silicon Valley tech bro independence and having a digital AI mom that's going to take care of you if you just come up with a new code in the app, right, are the ones that are going to succeed. What sectors do you think we in the region will be able to succeed in that way and really truly innovate with the participation of government? Dubai's, 25% of Dubai's GDP is from, from retail, wholesale, import, export, et cetera stuff. So if you take logistics and supply chains, there still is, even in this world where we're much more digitally inclined, you know, there's still, we still need food, we still have clothes, you know, we still need physical things. And so the getting of the manufacturing and distribution of goods and services uh, associated with that is still a, a huge thing. And the reality is there's huge opportunities for digitization, for automation, for robotization in that traditional sectors of the economy. Mm -hmm. So if you take Dubai's economy and break that down in terms of its major sectors, you've got wholesale retail, if you combine construction and real estate, about 15% of the GDP is from there. You know, you've got these, these uh, transport, aviation, logistics, warehousing, you know, these comprise 40 to 50% of the economy. Within that, there's huge opportunities for digitization, automation, and robotization. So there's a whole growth area, given the, the region, uh, and Dubai and the UAE in particular's role in the region as this global hub for making all the aspects of the traditional economy, quote unquote, faster, smarter, better. But the real growth areas in the future are in the immaterial economies, right, the immaterial sectors. And these are things like telehealth, like remote learning, like the creative economy, right, like professional services are associated with that, like video gaming, gaming economics and entertainment, you know. These are five or six sectors which become global in nature, right, that if the UAE and Dubai can have a small part of, will m provide multiples of its current GDP by just participating in a smaller fraction of a much larger pie. That raises all sorts of exciting questions, though, and, qu and implications, because if you're competing in a global marketplace, it doesn't matter where you are, right? It's location independent. And the UAE, and I should say Dubai's economic model has to date been very location dependent, taking advantage of its location advantage uh, in the region. And a lot of the historic economic business models around free zones and rent seeking, you know, are based upon taking advantage of the location there and providing access to this location for other companies and other countries. That sort of dissolves, right? So what does a truly location independent immaterial economy look like for Dubai? Uh, that is uh, that is the question. Uh, for Dubai's long-term future, ultimately. We have some answers, but that'll take a longer a podcast to explain. I think I'll take you up on the offer of, well, you haven't offered, but I would like to do another podcast once you have those answers. I want to go back to the whole populist movement. What role does government and technology players play in order to educate people the right way, to prevent the, the anti-vaxxers movement, to prevent people from believing that, you know, this vaccine is going to control us via 5G? Who has the responsibility to stop it? And how do we stop it? Yeah, this is, so this is obviously a sort of contentious and debatable uh, positions on this. The United States right now is struggling with this, uh, having been an advocate, if you look at Facebook and Twitter, of these platforms saying, we are not a publisher, therefore we are not responsible for what is being said on our, on our platform. That has, there's a, there's a certain wisdom to that approach. It's also helped make them a lot of money and absolve them of a lot of responsibilities. Uh, and 
unfortunately has taken place in the context where the government itself hasn't taken responsibility beyond certain very limited uh, rules around hate crime and that kind of thing um, and libel. You know, Europe has taken a much stronger approach with GDPR and with actively, you know, saying, no, you are actually responsible for the content on your on your platform and you have to develop systems which enable you to fact check things, follow up on the source of rumors and, and these types of things. And then on the other farther end of the spectrum, you have China and uh, other Asian countries which uh, actively participate in what can and can't be said. Right? Now, I don't know what the answer is there somewhere in between there. Right. But the reality is uh, the two extremes are, are, are extreme. Right? And I think that the technology companies, right, if you're talk you are essentially a media company. Right? If, you're a if you're a platform that facilitates and shapes what gets said and what gets attention, so if you take the TikTok algorithm, for example, it's not just like a random platform with a chronological feed. Like gone are the days of, of unfiltered chronological feeds. There's just too much information. There's always an editorial or curation process in there. So the moment you start to take an editorial position or a curation position on that, you're assuming responsibility for what gets said and what gets shared. Therefore, you have to, you have to be responsible for that and have a system in place for that. However, it also it's too much to ask private companies to bear the whole burden of, of governing what can and can't be said in society. What is dangerous speech? What is hateful speech? What is hurtful speech? What happens when that starts to uh, escalate beyond a certain level of, of community? Um, there's really compelling evidence around the Gilets Jaunes movement in France that that sparked off just after Facebook changed its algorithm uh, after Cambridge Analytica and the critique of that to prioritize local news feeds, right? And so you had this bubble effect happening within certain disaffected communities that started getting louder and louder amplification and echoing going on there that sparked this, 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 this national movement. The bottom line is, at the end of the day, government is responsible for the public sphere, right? So beyond just regulation, government has to have a role in setting the example for what good governance is, for what good citizenship is, right? What good dialogue means. Uh, and that, of course, has its own whole can of worms associated with that. I mean, this is debatable political theory for hundreds of years. But in a rapidly moving, massively fragmented digital world where these things can like spark in, in, a, in a moment and become a global movement, uh, government has to take responsibility for managing the public sphere in some way, shape or form, because that literally is its job. Right. That's literally its job. How it does is one of the key questions of the 21st century as well. There's a lot of experiments out there. I don't particularly have an answer to that. We don't know. We're kind of beyond best practices at this point. We can only try things out and test out new solutions and try to see how they work. I think my final question is, we're all very optimistic here in Dubai, but um, if you were still in France on that farm, do you, would you feel as optimistic? Well, the only reason I would still be in France on that farm is if the virus was much more dangerous, deadly, or infectious than it turned out to be. Right? It's quite highly infectious, and for certain populations, very, da very dangerous. Um, and we don't really know what the long-term effects will be. So, you know, I love Dubai. I love the UAE. I, you know, like many of us, came here 10 years ago on a two-year contract, planning just to kind of come in, have a nice life experience, and then was very privileged and lucky to have been able to work on a whole range of historic projects and awesome things with some amazing people, right? So it's just I have literally worked in many places around the world, and I've never found a place like Dubai where you can really um, – really make an impact and have a great time doing it. Uh, so it would take a lot to pull me away from that. Uh, the 
only reason then I would have stayed on the France is if this was a zombie apocalypse that a lot of us were were fearing. And I won't lie, like I was uh, early and through a network of people, which I maintain globally, you know, through uh, WhatsApp and various social networks. You know, we had shared shopping lists and we got our pandemic shopping done really early. I got like even a little bit more extreme with that, like, you know, riot armor and like <laughs> slingshots and, you know, yeah, just it's just like, it, again, as a, at the end of the day, futurists are historians, right? If yeah. you are a futurist, you cannot claim to be have any anything to say about what the next you know year looks like if you don't understand the last 10 years. Right. So historically, we have many examples in recent history of society rapidly breaking down, right? Not zombie apocalypse, Mad Max style stuff, but like all the ethnic tensions coming out, all the political rivalries, all the neighborhood bickering becoming amplified uh, in horrible ways really quickly, right? So it is naive and, to, and, and immature to assume that it couldn't happen here. Right, uh, here as in like in our lives. What I don't were think you hoping you know. to damage with a slingshot. Oh, I'm rubbish. I mean, I'm like the weakest person. You're like physically, you know. Uh, like it, it, part of this is just is just sort of like prepper psychotherapy. It's like okay, cool. Like I've got a slingshot. I could hunt. I don't know. Hunt for rabbits. Like there aren't any rabbits in Dubai. Like what? You know, my my re- my escape plan. If if everything if everything goes to you know pear shaped is like run down to the fisherman's village and try to like bribe some uh, you know Bangladeshi fisherman to try to spirit me off to who knows where. I mean, it's re- truly, it's fantasy, right? At the end of the day. But, um, but you know, you're, you, you have to consider these things, right? Uh, you have to consider these things. And so uh, I did, and that was why I escaped to this sort of, you know, sheep farm in France. Uh, and you know, so as a push came to shove, I would have been farming sheep, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> is an ignominious end for futurists. But, you know, you know, funny, the history is funny. Um, I'm really glad I didn't. And I'm really glad that the UA did such an amazing job managing the virus, that the global community, for what it was worth, was able to put together a certain response. And we got lucky. Like, let's be honest. We got lucky, right? This virus, I mean, we as a global species, right, in the global community. It, it it's bad and very infectious, but it's not as deadly as it could have been. And it's and uh, hopefully this is you know kind of the wake up call that we need at the global scale in the same way that MERS was a wake up call for many of the Asian communities uh, ten years ago. So the future is going to be more volatile, more uncertain, more dramatic, and more surprising. Uh, and that's both exciting and terrifying all at once. You know, that's something I can agree to. <laughs> terrifying and exciting, Doctor No. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a really intriguing chat. It's a pleasure. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks to Dr. Noah and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.